Amazing. <laughs> oh, I love you guys. <laughs> We're looking today, as I said, John's not going anywhere, but he won't be the focus of our uh, messages, for me anyway, for the foreseeable future, but our, our attention to uh, his book, as I've said, has been something that has been a joy for me, I hope a joy for you, I hope a time of learning as, we've looked at, we, as we look at uh, John's heart as a pastor, uh, as an apostle, as one who desires to shepherd the flock that uh, God's called him to do. Uh, our passage is the, the final verses of chapter 5 of 1 John, which is in your uh, pew Bibles, if you so choose to use those or if you brought your own. But it is always, I believe, important to be able to have uh, a Bible open so that you know that when I'm reading and speaking, I don't have the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times up here but that we're speaking uh, God's truth and uh, visually to be able to follow along and maybe even take notes is something that I think is so beneficial for our hearts. What I do want to lead with this morning before we get to that is an Old Testament reading as well. So if you would turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, <clears throat> beginning with verse 15, very familiar passage. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one in another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, This is, this, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things and with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David shall be their king over them, and they shall have all one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful 
to obey my statutes. And they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. And they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I shall set them in their land and multiply them and will, be, and, and will set my sanctuary in their midst. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. <clears throat> then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuary in their midst. And then turn with me now to <clears throat> our passage today from 1 John. I'm going to read beginning of chapter 5, just to pull all the verses together. We looked at these briefly last time. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, or by, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three all agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has, been, he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have uh, the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that, no, that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, 
and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. We do ask, Father, for your help, your blessing, your presence in the Holy Spirit to be with us as we hear and read and learn from this faithful servant's letter to people whom he seems to love greatly and dearly, not with a physical love, but with a love that comes from heaven. And Lord, may we replicate that here as we have done and in a greater sense, Lord, from this pastor, the pastor, the apostle of love. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we read these closing words that as we bring this all together, that you would be honored and blessed in our lives and that our walk with you would, has, would have made us better for it and that we would come to understand in a greater way what grace is all about through Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope by now you have the categories or the three exams or the three tests that John presents to this church that he is writing to, these believers that he's writing to. Uh, the three exams are the very first one, the, the doctrinal test, the test of truth. Then we have the, the test of, of obedience and the test of love. Doing these things do not make us right with God. But because we are right with God, we do these things. We don't, we, are, we don't do the Sermon on the Mount. We, aren't, we don't live out the Beatitudes to give us, being, giving us a, a relationship with God. Because we have a relationship with God, we live out those Beatitudes. That's what Christians look like. And that's what John is trying to convey to this flock, as we've talked many times uh, about this, it was a year ago, uh, last year this time we started this, this journey and we end today where John writes to this church, write to these believers who are going through a struggle, who are going through some division because within the church there are either people that are still residing there, who are dabbling with, who are trying to change the sound doctrines of John's teaching that the Holy Spirit has led him to give to us. The teachings that he's learned from Jesus as we look at the Gospel of John and we see replete through uh, John's Gospel the very themes of what we read about in, in John's epistles. These people these uh, that were once seemed to be brothers and sisters in the Lord are now, as John writes to us, some of them have just Succeed, seceded from the church, have separated themselves, have left, leaving the place in turmoil and a lot of confusion with the people that are there about, are they really believers? Is God really in love with them? 
Is God really blessing them? Is God watching over them? Does God really care for them? Or is it like what these teachers have taught that only a few have been enlightened? Only a few have had this higher knowledge, this gnosis, which then ends up being the, the name of this cult and this heresy called Gnosticism, that they believe that it is the realm of ideas or the realm of spiritual mysticism or this place that is certainly not on earth because earthly things and physical things are evil. And so we don't worry ourselves with the horizontal. We focus all of our attention and we, we, we hope that we connect with the spirit in some way that we are illumined and enlightened and in a better place than these other people. And so John is concerned, and John writes to them throughout this epistle in many ways, alluding to very subtly and yet very boldly in their face that there are only two ways. There are, you, there are either one way that is through Jesus Christ and who Jesus is. Is he truly the Son of God? Did he really come in the flesh? Or, as they teach, at his baptism, did the Spirit of God, his anointing, only come upon this good man named Jesus, and then at that moment, at his baptism, being anointed with this Spirit from God, this role of being the Son of God. Not that he's always been the Son of God, but that he became the Son of God. And then at his, at his death upon the cross, that the Spirit left him. This Spirit that he, the Spirit of the Son of God came upon him at baptism, but left him certainly because he was not a human being to begin with. It was just a Spirit, a role that he played as the Son of God. And John is very concerned because the implications are deadly, are deadly for believers if we are to believe that. Or we can believe what the other teachers believe that is that uh, this, this Son of God came and that this body was not real, but a phantom, a ghost. And so when he became, uh, in his baptism, this wasn't really a body, but this was a, a, a phantom, a ghostly person that the word uh, dokeo in Greek, and I'm not trying to impress you with that, but the name, the name of the movement in the heresy is docetism, which means to be like or seem like. And so this man or this phantom Jesus that looked like Jesus, sort of like the, the squeaky plastic Santa Claus in Santa Claus 2, wasn't really Santa Claus. Wasn't, this isn't really Jesus. This really wasn't uh, uh, the Son of God. This really uh, was just a, a form of a like of a man. And then he certainly could have not died on the cross because, again, it's all evil. Creation, uh, physical world is all evil. So we don't bother. And how could God take the form of evil if he's God? And so if... If this is the case, then what John is writing to us is a lie. But as you can see, John turns the tables many times and says to them, 
No, they're the liars. No, they're the ones who are not enlightened. Those are the ones who are not gnosis. These are the ones who are not in the know. But how many times, if you've read this book and if you listen to me, how many times do we read, we know? We see it again today. We are given this assurance. And the key verse here is what we read today is verse 13. I write these things to you who believe. He is not trying to evangelize. That's what he was doing in chapter 20 of John's gospel. I write these things to you so that you may believe. He is writing the gospel to unbelievers. He is writing this epistle to believers, which I hope includes all of you. He is writing this epistle to all believers to give them assurance that not to listen to these people who either may still be there in some level, but it sounds like, as he says, they were never with us. They were never for us, and they never were with us to begin with, and now they've left because they've never been one of us. So we see that this doctrinal test, who is Jesus? Is he fully God, and is he fully man? And many times we've read here that he is the Son of God, he is fully God, and he is fully man. Then we have the, 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 the obedience test, and he says, and again we've read as we looked at the chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And then he says in verse uh, two, by this we know we love, God, we love the children of God if we love God and obey his commandments. Now, we obey God not to be accepted by God, but we are accepted by God, and so we obey God to show our gratitude. So how we live our lives physically shows how our lives are connected uh, in a vertical manner spiritually, which is something that these heretics had no care about. Why have any rules? We don't care. We do, this, is not, this doesn't make any difference. This place is meaningless to us. We're looking for this, this heavenly place. And so, God, so John tells them over and over again, he says, this is how we know love. How do we know that we love God? Well, we love God by obeying his commandments. We do this because we love him. And then the, the, the final test is the, the test of love. How do we love one another? As John's gospel says many times, you know, the world will know who we are. The Lord will know that we love the Father, and that we love Jesus by how we love one another. And how is that done? And if, they, if these people who were the heretics, these, they weren't called Gnostics at that time, but they were the precursor for Gnosticism, they didn't show any kind of love for these people by disrupting their lives, by destroying, trying to destroy this church, by leaving them and not loving God whatsoever and not showing the love of God for, the, for God at all in their lives. So they didn't have any love for the brothers. They only loved what themselves. They only cared about themselves. Their focus was myopic. They had tunnel vision. And John is telling them to remember that this is what Jesus said about loving one another. 
And how we do that, we love one another because we love God. That's why we love one another. And that's what John has been trying to say. If you, I want you to be assured. I want you to know you have salvation. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you obey because you love God? And do you love one another because you love God? If that's what drives you, if that's what juices your life, if that's how we focus our attention every day of our lives, then be assured that low-hanging fruit is what makes us understand who you are. So that's what this, is, that's what this has been about, this test, these tests, how we can examine ourselves. And Paul tells us we, we, we have to examine ourselves before we, we enter baptism, before we enter into the sacraments of, of, uh, of communion. We examine ourselves and say, what, what are we doing this for? And that's as leadership of the church, we examine so that you know what you're doing when you are desiring to be baptized or you want your child to be baptized or you want to take communion. What are you doing this for? Because we do not want to cast the pearls that Jesus gave us among people who are just going to trample on it like they are disregarding and, Paul, and they use very strong terms, casting our pearls among swine. That's how important it is for us to hold these things so true and so sacred, because God has given them to us. And that's why John is holding those up to the church, holding those up to these people, saying, I want you, I love you, little children, dear children, beloved people, realize that we know that we are children of God. Again, that great, great verse that started this whole year ago, this series on in John, is we looked at in verse 28 of chapter 2 in John's epistle. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has shown that they have been born of God, that they have been born from above. They have been born again, as Nicodemus had to be educated. See, he says, behold, this love is from another planet. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's what this epistle has been about. And there are times when Satan beats us up and we question. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We look at our lives. We look at our, we hear our thoughts. We know our feelings. And sometimes we wonder, am I really a believer? Do I, re do I really love Jesus? And that's Satan Trying to beat us up. Now, it's not to say that that is not a good bunch of questions to ask yourself. But not to linger if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If we believe that Jesus came to die for our sins. If we believe that, then we should be led, do I love the commandments of God? Some of them are very difficult, don't you agree? But we don't despise them because they're difficult. We just ask the Spirit of God to help us to do the best we can. We belong to a family of God and love one another, which is the other test, so that we work this out together. 
We try this holiness stuff together. That's what one another is all about. And that's what John says. If, you, if this is what your life is like, be assured, brothers and sisters. So today, as we see in uh, chapter 5, verses 1, is it, really that, that tells us here, he says, uh, um, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and uh, that is everything that is opposed of God. The world here is everything that is in opposition. Everything that tries, as the cuckoo bird does and tries to invade nests and tries to kick the inhabitants out of the nest so that they take over that nest. You've seen those wonderful documentaries of that dastardly little bird. That there is always something trying to fill that spot. We do it. The world does it. The people that we live with, the jobs that we go, the music that we live, the things that we have, all are vying for that space. But John tells us that we have overcome that strength of the world. Not to say that we don't succumb to it at times, because I hope you are like me, and we struggle profusely at times for that thing to try to take that space over. And so John says to us in chapter 2 of 1 John, and which is this is, he tells us the kind of love we're supposed to have, but in chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, this is the love that God hates. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the, all, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's the overcoming. There is that victory that he talks about. That we can now say no to that Tremendous force that is trying to take our hearts over, that is trying to take our minds. So now we're going to look at a passage today, which is probably the, is the most difficult passage in this book, and in some, in, in, in truly in, in, the, in the scriptures themselves, is this passage about where he talks about in verses 6 through 12, this, this section, verses 6 through 12, wants us to focus on the object of our faith. Because as you see, the, the, the uh, transition passage or verses, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. He is telling us it is not our faith that saves us. It is not our faith that gives us the victory, but... Because, why? Because faith is a gift. It's not ours, right? Paul writes to us in Ephesians. We've been given this faith. But the object of our faith is what saves us. What do or who do we believe in? And so he says in verse 6, this is who came by. Well, a better translation, because the, 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 the preposition changes here in this verse. This is he who come, came by or through water and blood. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ. 
Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah. It's not his last name. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So in, right after the word Jesus Christ, the preposition changes to being by or in. So it is through water and blood, but not only in the water or, in the, or by the water and in the blood or by the blood. It's all three that it's talking about here. He is saying here that there are three witnesses to testify. And as you were go, if I was going along and reading this, and I'm hoping, hoping that you see this, how many, word, how many times the word testimony or testify is used in those verses? And somebody is testifying or a witness in a trial they are giving. The perspective of something from their mind or from their perspective they are giving a testifying to what they believe to be the truth. And so he says this, what on earth is the water? What on earth is the blood? And what are the three? And why witnesses? And as you can guess, as long as this passage has been around, there's been all kinds of books written and all kinds of discussions from, uh, from people that are the heavy hitters to people who are not so heavy hitters. In, in the world of scholarship, even from Martin Luther and John Calvin and Augustine, there are, there are different perspectives. Some believe when they talk about the water and blood is that they're talking about uh, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of, of communion. Calvin and Luther, I think, believe that, if I'm correct. But there isn't any place in the Bible that says, that treats baptism just with water or that we just talk about and identify or signify or the sign being communion being blood itself. It's certainly about blood. It's certainly about the shedding of blood. It's certainly about being covered by blood. It's certainly about the purification of sins. It is certainly about being washed. But there isn't really any sense where those two can be identified as that. Some believe that on the cross, when Jesus was uh, poked and stabbed with the spear, that what came from him was water and blood to signify his humanity. I'm not discounting that. I think Augustine believed that one. I'm not discounting that at all. I'm not saying that Calvin and Luther were completely wrong. I'm just thinking from this perspective, Evidently, what we do know is that these folks didn't have any problems with it, did they? Right? They totally understood what John was talking about. It must have been the lingo of the time. It must have been some way they identified it and they talked about it. Either Jesus talked about it with John or John talked about it with somebody and taught these people this. But this is where they had this understanding. Or it can be as I believe, and many others and the majority is, is that water and blood and the Spirit are three testimonies. And you remember what Deuteronomy tells us? Deuteronomy says that, an, that uh, a case is made by two or three witnesses. And here we have three witnesses that John, that John gives us about the truth of the accusation or the case that Jesus is who he is, and that we are who we are. 
This Jesus, who came by or through blood, water and blood, is Jesus Christ. So, and it can't be, and sometimes we think about, or people talk about this water and blood being gushed from his side. The two are brought, seem to be together. They, it's like one event, water and blood. But these, there's articles here we were given, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Seems to be two distinct things that he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Well, where is it where the Spirit testifies about who Jesus is? Well, remember when Jesus was baptized, and he went into the water, and a spirit, the Holy Spirit came like a dove, came upon Jesus, and what did this voice say from heaven? This is my Son, who I am well pleased. Follow him. So we're talking about this is Jesus being testified by the Spirit of God, by God himself. Because remember, the Word of God is truth, but it comes from the God who is truth, who is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is truth, as we're told here. Jesus is truth. He is the, he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And the Father's true. So we see this, this, this uh, trinity, uh, this whole combination of the trinity testifying and being a part of this witness. So we see here that what's important, what is John trying to say? That at baptism, notice and remember the, the preposition through. Jesus was the Son of God when he entered into the water to be baptized. It wasn't that the Spirit of God came upon him because he wasn't it before it, and then he became it at that moment. But that he's the Son of God from beginning to end, through the baptism. He, it wasn't that he became, it was that he was the Son of God. He was recognized as the Son of God then. That's why John writes through and by. Through the whole event, it wasn't that oh, at that moment he wasn't and he now became he was. Jesus was and is the Son of God through, through the event of baptism. So to discount what these heretics are saying, it wasn't that this spirit came upon or this phantom came upon. Jesus has always been the Son of God. And the blood, remember, the res remember the, the, the sacrifice of the, on the cross of Jesus. Remember his death upon the cross. Remember everything that Jesus talked about. He goes, I have a baptism that I'm going to be baptized by, and I just am waiting, I am longing for that to come. His death upon the cross. Why in Luke does it tell us that Jesus, his, like his face like granite, wanted to go to Jerusalem because he knew that that is where he had to die. And that's where he needed to shed his blood. He is the Lamb of God. He is the ultimate sacrifice. His blood was real. This is John saying that the blood testified that Jesus, did, he made it, when he went through the blood, he went through the sacrifice. When he went through death on the cross, he was a real man. So he was not only the Son of God, he was, I mean, the, the Son of God, totally God, fully God, but he was completely and fully man. Forget about what those heretics are saying. These are historical events. And he is pointing these out. These are facts. 
These are things you can take to the bank. This is what is real. This is the evidence that they're testifying to in the case against Jesus being real or not. And then the Spirit of God is, as we see throughout the entire scriptures and at his baptism. And remember when Jesus died, the centurion said, surely this is the Son of God. Why? Because of all the things that took place the, the, the sky getting dark and the, the storms and the earthquakes and all this miraculous supernatural events that happened in a natural world that weren't supposed to take place. All of these were evidence. All of these things were documented that this really took place, that these are historical. And this centurion says, truly this man is the son of God. So we see that through these events, we have the Spirit of God testifying, the Holy Spirit testifying who Jesus is. We have the water as a testifier, and we have the blood as a testifier saying these guys are whacked. These guys are wrong. These guys don't know the truth. They don't know who Jesus is. But you do, because you believe. You believe in who he is. But now he says in verse 9, if we receive testimony of men, and meaning that, we listen to other people testify to things. We listen to people in court. We listen to people testify that like a Ford over a Chevy. We listen to people testify over products, over places to go on vacation. Some will go on cruises. Some will be caught dead on a cruise. People go on all kinds of things on everybody's testimony, and they say, we'll listen to the testimony of men, but why won't we listen to the testimony of God? Because, he says, the testimony of God is much greater. And so that's the struggle that you and I have with the people that we witness to, is it not? That we will give them the testimony of God, but pfft, what's that mean? But I can convince some of my colleagues that, man, buy a Ryobi drill because it works a whole bunch better on your, on your test than something else. And they'll go, yeah, that's really good. I'll give it a try. But if you tell them that Jesus is God and you tell them that the Bible says they go, written by a bunch of men, how do we know? But God says so. And we know that in our heart. And that's the other thing that changes for us, is that, that even though it sounds like a circular argument, is that we believe the Bible because the Bible tells us so. It's true, though. Unless we believe this, we can have all the evidence. I can sit down with my colleagues. I can sit down with my family. I can sit down with anybody and go for a case for Christ, right? I can go right down and give them all... Is that going to persuade somebody? The answer is, eh, wrong answer. No, it's not. No one is going to be persuaded by the evidence. Evidence is important. Historical events are important. The history of the Bible, it's great with these archaeological digs that we can find out that there was a group of people named the Hittites who for years said, who are the Hittites? Where did they come from? And all of a sudden we realize, wow, our Bible, our covenants, our covenants were are the same form that God used of these Hittite treaties. This is where we get God's law from. This is where God used the treaty of the Hittites to show us what a covenant looks like. And a whole bunch of other things. And so, 
It's important for us to realize that you and I believe that this is the Word of God because the Spirit of God has changed you and me to believe it. You and I can't believe this unless God changes our heart. Because like in Ezekiel, in chapter 37, before that, there is a bunch of dead, dry bones around. And good for nothing. Until the Spirit of God comes and brings them life and causes their, His Spirit to dwell within them. Follow with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I ask you to point, I can, I can name verses, but I want you to do the work with me. I want you to go to the place where I'm talking about, because all of a sudden I haven't pulled my iPhone out and started reading something to you that has no value. I'm reading from the Word of God, so you can see that, and I hopefully hope you have one in front of you, or somewhere, that we can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is where we talk about the inner working of the Holy Spirit causing us to believe. After the facts are there, after we understand who Jesus is and we're told that he was really God and really man because the Bible tells us this, what makes the light go on? And who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for your glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now I'm at chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, because this is important to see. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have, not, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has the understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But now we have the mind of Christ. So that we understand these things. There was a time when this was foolish to me. When this was something that was good for holy rollers, for Jesus freaks that I went to school with, for people who were in those little cafes that would read the Bible and saying, I got my religion, I'm okay with God. I'm a, I'm a better person than this one, I'm a better person than that one. I'm not a bad, I go to church, I do all these things. I'm not bad, God's got to love me. 
But until I read the scriptures, until I had that little Gideon's Bible and went to the bathroom all the time when I was a machinist, and I'd run to there to read this and go, I never saw Jesus like this before. This was not the Bible or the person of Jesus that I ever heard of in church all the years that I went. What happened? It was the Spirit of God working in my life. By the grace of the Gideons who gave my mother the Gideon's Bible. So we see that that's what John, that's what John is talking about. We receive the testimony of men. But the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God. And what is the testimony of God? That, th that he has born concerning his son. He has told us who his son is. We go to John chapter 5. We go to John chapter 8. Jesus says, I'm going to testify and you guys aren't going to believe a word I say about myself. Now he's not saying that his testifying about himself is invalid. He's just going to say, you guys don't care. But then he says in chapter 8, he goes, the, the, the Spirit of God has come. And the Spirit's going to help you see and testify to who I am. And when I do the things that I do, the Father is testifying that I am doing the things of my Father. So we see the Father, the Father God testifying to who Jesus is and why he is so well pleased with him. Now I'm going to need to move on a little bit because this is two sermons here. But... Uh, he says uh, in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Not that it is his testimony. I want to make sure. We have our own testimonies, do we not? There are, there are discipleship groups, there are discipleship books, the InterVarsity, Campus Crusade, people who write their testimonies out. I got no problem with that. Got no problem with that. But that, is, that may be used by God to change people. But it is the testimony of God that is within you and me. Is it not? Is it not God's word in our hearts telling us who Jesus is? It is not my testimony about Jesus. As he says here, in my heart, in myself, I have God's testimony. And the only way that you have come to understand who Jesus is is because God has placed his testimony in your heart, and you believe it. Amen? And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this is in his Son. Whoever has a son of life, whoever has a son has life. That's the word zoe, which we looked at in uh, chapter, um, chapter 3. The word, remember the words that he used? He used the word Suke, which is the, the, the being of person. He used the word zoe, or the word where a woman, they get a girl's name zoe from. Uh, that means life, eternal life. And then there's the word bios, meaning the words about uh, uh, the, the things that we have and, and uh, obtain in our life. But this is the word, the, the son has life. He's talking about Jesus and eternal life. And whoever does not have this testimony in their hearts... Whoever does not have Jesus pointly, blankly says that they don't have the Son of God, nor do they have eternal life. No matter what they say, no matter what religion they serve, no matter what form of Christianity they think that they're serving, and there are Christian cults out there that people are being duped and blinded by this, these lies about who Jesus is. 
That's why he says in verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now verse 13 through, uh, verse 13, that's, the, that's really, a, it's all by itself, is that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The, the next two come right after it. I mean, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you and I believe, if, if the Jesus that we believe in is not fully human and fully God, then we have to throw out what he said in chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 13, is that he is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who died for our sins to take away the wrath of God. If Jesus is not fully God and not fully man, we are to be pitied, as Paul says in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if he has not been raised from the dead bodily, we are to be pitied. And that's what he is saying here. He is saying, these people who left have no hope. They are in darkness. They're liars. They are blinded. They are lost. They do not have Jesus, even though they feel that in their heart and their mind they are being, they have revelation from God and they are, they are spiritually moved and they feel so good about where they are. He says they're wrong, they're lost because they don't have the truth. And so he says to them, now, being you know that you have the truth, he says, what does that do for you in your life? And verses 14 through 17 gives us what we read in there, the word assurance and confidence. This assurance that we have is the very important thing as Christians is our communication and our dialogue with God through prayer. Because Jesus has died, we now, because of Jesus' death, we now have access. We've been given access to the Holy of Holies, to the very heart of God, because of the death of Christ, because of the obedience of Christ, because it is finished work, we can't add anything to it. Now we have, because of Christ, we have great privilege of entering into the very audience with God himself as a father. And not only that, as Jeff talked about today, we have the Spirit of God. We even have Christ interceding for us. If we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Father listening for us, we have the Son and the Spirit interceding for us, how can it be wrong? How can God not listen to himself, to his Son, to the person of his Son, to the person of the Holy Spirit? Because Spirits don't testify. Personalities testify. That's a thing that a personality does. A person does. The Holy Spirit can't be an it. It's a he. Because it's don't testify. He's do. That's what John is saying. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, or boldness, verse 14. We have toward God. We can boldly go now where we had no right to be whatsoever. We don't go arrogantly. We go to the Father as a father. We boldly go to our, our children, come to us. with it, let it all hang out. They just come and they just come to us with everything, whether we want to hear it or not. My daughter's sitting right over there. 
we hear it or not, they come to us dumping it all. And we sit there and, yes, we understand. Yes. Now, I'm not putting, I don't want to characterize God as doing that. God loves us and listens to us. At every level of our faith where we are at, he listens to us. As we accept our kindergarten class picture of ourselves hanging on our refrigerator. Oh, isn't that a beautiful picture of me? Thank you so much. And it looks like a Rorschach test. You and I know that they did it out of love because this is who we are and they, and they know that we'll accept it. And this is the way God the Father accepts us. That way. And when we don't have words to say, when we are either joyful to the point that we got nothing to say and we can't articulate words because our gut is so sick, our heart is so sad, our lives are so dark it feels that way, that God takes that groaning and articulates for us through the Spirit of God and through His Son the very words that we are trying to say to Him. And so that's why we have confidence. We have confidence because God will not turn us away. We have confidence because we come in the name of Jesus. We have confidence because we are children of God. That's the only confidence we have that God hears us, folks. The only confidence we have is because the testimony of God telling us that this is my son who I'm well pleased. And if we ask anything according to his will, he hears. But you know who has to hear first? We do. Right? We have to know who God is before we ask. We, have to, we cannot go to Price Chopper and try to go buy a car and then be disappointed with Price Chopper because Price Chopper doesn't sell cars. And we can't go to God and expect Him to do something if it's not His will to do so. So, what is God's will for prayers or things in our life? We think of, we think of, uh, of uh, Maureen, or we think of Brandon's father, or we think of Mike. What do we pray about these situations? Well, very from the, I've prayed, I told him from the very top, what do I want? And God tells me, I pr and I pray, I hope God wants this, that there's an immediate healing. That's what I know, because why? Because I know God can do that. And I know his word tells me that he can, and he has. So I am praying according to God's will. But maybe that's not God's will. Listen to, let's turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5. Verse 7, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Sounds like us, right? We go to God with loud cries. Have you ever gone in the car and just have had it and you just cry out to God and scream? People think you're having a breakdown because you just 
it's just going so crazy and you just talk to God. Not that he's not that you're blaming him, but you just have no one else who wants to look at that face and wants to hear that word. And God accepts that. With loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard. Jesus was heard. But wait a minute. This is wrong, right? How is Jesus heard when he prayed that take this away from me? He still died. Jesus didn't know how to pray. He got it wrong. He didn't know what the will of the Father was. Jokingly, I'm telling you this is the fact here is that Jesus prayed in a way where he submitted himself, not my will, but your will be done. That's what it says here when it says he was heard because of his submission. Because of him willingly submitting to God's will. So we pray to God and we have confidence that if we know it is God's will to heal, we pray. If we don't know what it is, we can pray whatever God tells us to pray in his word. We can pray that God keep them secure while they're going through this. Give them faith so that they don't lose their salvation or lose their hope in you or lose that they, they, that they're, they're understanding. And this may be the thing that actually pulls them away from your family. Lord, may, I pray that they are truly your child and we pray that you'll give them the faith to keep on hanging on. Is that not a prayer we can pray? Yes. Even though I wish that God would listen to every prayer that I've prayed about when it comes to somebody's healing. But that's where Romans 8 comes in, which I've pray, with, prayed with you and talked with you about, is this, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? But if the all things mean tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Meaning that God may use any one of these things, and it is his will to cause us to go to our knees so that we would depend upon him. I, that's where I need to ask God for strength, and I need God to ask him for faith. Because I would really wish that he would take it away. I do not like the long, protracted holding on and holding on and watching. And when, you know, personally watching my, my mom and watching this whole distress. And I know saints who have died and, and immediately died. And, and, you just, and it was just so nice that they didn't go on for three or four days. And just you'd listen and you'd watch and you'd go, oh, this is awful. And I read this over and read this and read this about, who, about Romans, uh, Romans 8 because I needed to be reminded that even God uses all of those things in the midst of that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So you see how when we pray, how long our prayers should really be because if we go through all of the will of God in every instance, and that's just what I'm talking about healing, if we go through every instance about relationships, about finances, about guidance, about places where to live, where to go, our friendships, whatever, look how long all the will of God could be. If we prayed the scripture back to the Lord about all the things that he's told us. 
So we need to hear God before we speak to God. Now, that's something that I need to grow in myself. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him because we've run the gamut of everything that we know of in Scripture is the will of God. And we will not be disappointed because we've prayed for that. Even if it means my mother's not healed. Or my job, I lose my job and I lose all of everything I've ever made. Or whatever. Or relationships that I've loved in my life and people that I've been with turn away from me and desert me. And my family turns against me. If anyone, now this part, last part here is, is a difficult section. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins and do not lead to death. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say, what, I do not say one should pray for that. Now that's confusing. Not to the people who were reading this. <laughs> it wasn't confusing. But what I'm looking at this is that there are a myriad of, of answers for this as well. What is the unforgivable sin? What is, you know, is it apostasy? You know, what, what is it? And I don't, I don't really think that we need to focus on what that is. I think what John is telling us here is the one another part of what it is to be, to be in a family of God, to be a part of a family of God, to be committed to a church, as I've read to you and said to you many times that John is talking about that love for one another cannot be really done unless you become a fixed part of a, com a local community of faith. But he says, if anyone sees his brother, now that may be specifically for someone you know as a brother or someone you may think that may be a brother. Someone who was in your midst. These people left. There may be people which stood in their midst that are, are having a problem and they're still there. And so you look at everybody and you may think these people are brothers and sisters. And they may not be. So this may particularly be about being a brother in the Lord or someone who you think may be a brother. Committing a sin not leading to death. Now there are sins that we all commit that don't lead to death. <laughs> we don't lose our salvation. But we may get into situations where we are so distraught that we end up doing things that don't look rational for a believer to do. And that's where the one another comes in. He is trying to, to incite them to make sure that they are to pray. They are not to go out and talk about these people or gossip about these people. These are the things that God is saying to them. John is telling them through the Spirit of God through John is telling them that the place we ought to go for these people is immediately prayer. Pray that God would restore them if they are a brother or sister in Christ. But there is a sin that leads to death, and that, I believe, is where these people are at. I think he is saying to them, not, he is not telling them not to pray to the people that left. He is not telling them not to pray for unbelievers. But he is telling them that, that these people are real believers. And if they are in Christ and they can never lose their salvation, that God will restore them. I hope that makes sense. That God will restore them. 
Because he has promised that they have life. And they believed in his testimony. And God and Jesus says, Father, I have not lost one that you have given me. You do not lose your salvation. But you can make a miserable piece of your life. What he's saying is that these people have left. Don't waste, don't worry about them immediately. Go to the people that are in your midst. Go to the people that you have felt a sense that they were brothers and sisters, people who were part of a body. There have been people in the life of this church, there were 300 people in this church at one time. Where did they all go? What all happened? Why The, the church has been tumultuously through these divisions. And there were people who were here that you thought were brothers and sisters. There are people who are not going to church anywhere. There are people who are going to places that they shouldn't be going to. These are the people that I believe that this is telling us to pray for, to be available, to be in contact with, to make sure that we don't see them slipping away, being sucked in by the lure of the world and the lure of deception. Because there are many different Christs out there. And the gospel's being peddled by people who are not telling them that, who Jesus is. So that's what I think he's telling us here. If you see a brother or sister committing sin that does not lead to death, ask God and he will give them life. Because if they are true believers... God tells us that they will never lose their salvation and God will restore them. The confidence we have in not our prayer, but what we're asking God because God has promised that we are secure in him. I hope that makes sense. Because what, John, what is, I mean, real quickly, I got to take you to, to James. Because this really fits an interpret, uh, understanding who James is when he writes this. James chapter 5, verse 13, where we practice and churches practice the anointing of oil upon the sick. I'm not saying that, and I've given, I gave this message a couple years ago, I'm not saying that we don't, we stop doing that, but I think the broader scope of what is being taught here is much more ministry oriented than just sick people. Is anyone who, among you suffering? Now this book is about suffering. This book is about being persecuted because he says here in verse 10 of chapter 5, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets. He's showing people examples of suffering. What does he say in the very beginning of James' book? Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces this, 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 and this. So I believe, as others do, that this is a book about suffering. He says, is any of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then let them sing praise. Is any of you sick? Now, in the New Testament, the word used here, sick, is interpreted in different ways. Some are for physical sickness, and some is for weakness and faintheartedness and infirmities. If you, do, if you are infirmed, if you find yourself beat up, if you find yourself in a turmoil, if you've been a part of a church split, if you've been a part of a relationship split, if you've been a part of something that is causing you to wonder about your faith, and you just can't, you're just so paralyzed that you become so faint-hearted and so weak, call upon people to pray with you. 
Let him call upon the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing them with oil, meaning to refresh them, meaning to uh, massage them in prayer. And the prayer of faith will save, meaning restore them. The one who is weak and weary and will raise them up. And that's what I'm thinking John is meeting here, meaning here the same way, that this broader sense of, of uh that a person gets himself so distraught or gets himself, and I'm not blaming them, but it happens in life that we get ourselves so worked up and so blindsided or so blind to the pain or, or being distorted about reality in our life that we end up looking, doing something wrong. And we end up living life and pulling ourselves away from God and pulling ourselves away from church and pulling ourselves away from the people that we need to be around. And he says, call the elders, tell the people who are your shepherds, the people who are over you in the Lord, the people who love you, the people who want to pray for you. That's why we pray for people in our bulletins in each week. The session does that because we want to know, do you need to be restored? Do you find yourself faint-hearted and weak? Do you need help? That's what I think he's talking about here. He is not wanting you to focus on what sin leads to death and what doesn't. I think he's talking about there are people who are, who are, this situation has caused them to be disrupted in their life. And he says, pray for them. Ask God to give them life, to restore them. And to the ones who, who don't want anything to do with you, don't worry about them right away. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And he says here, the affirmations of faith in closing. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We are sinners, but we are saved sinners. We are forgiven sinners. We are going to have problem with sin until the Lord takes us. But it is not our practice. It is not our desire. It is not something that we excuse in ourselves or in others who call themselves Christians. But he who was born of God, meaning Jesus, meaning born as this whole sense of the first brother that we've had, born of Christmas Mary, <laughs> born of in flesh. Not that he was never alive or never the son of God. He's always existed because he's God. This Jesus protects him and the evil one does not touch him. That's John chapter 8. And we know that, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know we're in a spiritual battle. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. We may not have any problems. We may come to an understanding, we can come to an understanding of who Jesus is. We can come to an understanding from the New Testament, Old Testament to the New Testament about God's plan, his creation, the fall, redemption, consummation. Those are what the Bible's all about. Stretched through from Genesis to Revelation. We understand that Jesus has been promised from Genesis 3. So that we know that him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and he and in his son Jesus Christ, he is the true God, and he is eternal life. Little children, work at it. That's what he's trying to say. Little children, 
God does all this for you. God provides all this for you. But just don't think that you can sit back in your lazy boy. Keep yourself from idols. Be discerning. Study who Jesus is. Find out who these things are or these people are or these traditions are or where you want to go. How you live your life. Is it acceptable to God? Can we do these things? This is, the, this is the one and other place we do this at. This is where we are sanctified. We are sanctified by the word of God, but this is a place we need the word of God, the, the, the family of God, to learn how to live holy and hold each other accountable because you're supposed to love me and I'm supposed to love you because I love God. That's what church is all about, Charlie Brown. So we didn't sing a hymn because I had all that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for making, <clears throat> making the truth known to us in such a profoundly clear way that children can understand it which is why we care for our covenant children so much. And yet, Lord, it is profoundly clear for those who have limited abilities. And Lord, for the Einsteins of the world, this can confound them, but yet, Lord, can change their heart as well. For those of us who have been changed by grace, we stand amazed at your grace. We thank you for this book. We pray now, Lord, that as we have studied it together, it will never be the same again. Because we have taken time to hear your voice through your servant, John. Thank you, Jesus, for being not only the example of what it is like to lead an obedient life, but that you are and became the propitiation, the substitute for me, the one who died a perfect death so that I may no longer fear your wrath nor worry about death, but that have the hope of eternal life, being not only with you, Jesus, but with others that you have given us the grace of sharing our lives with one another here. So, Lord, we ask for you to bless us. Bless us with a desire to love more than we love, a desire to listen more than we listen, and a desire to be more obedient, Lord, than we find ourselves now. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.